Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I am Jason, a guy who is in recovery. And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. Hmm. That's interesting that our descriptions don't involve the word clean. Yeah. (laughs) So that's what we're talking about today. Like this idea of clean time. And I will say that that when you mentioned this to me as a thought that had come up for you of, is it important? Does it matter? Is it relevant? Is there harmful aspects to it? I immediately just assumed... This episode was that you were going to argue that clean time was good, and I was going to argue that it was bad, and that's how it would go. So that's what I brought to the table today is a bunch of information about why it's terrible. Uh, Oh, so I pictured a little differently, but that's okay. (laughs) I'll go with either. So what I thought in my head, I recently had an anniversary come up, Mm -hmm. 22 years. It's a long fucking time. Thank you. And I kind of thought, like, does this long time amount of abstinence like does that mean something like is that a value or mm. is it just hanging on to something for the sake of hanging on to Ooh. it like a fucking old you yeah. know painting or something that you have that you just don't want to throw away right. but you're just you know and i don't know so it had me thinking about that for my anniversary and of course that around the time of my anniversary it, you know it felt like it had all kinds of meaning like yes mm. this is incredibly important I don't know. So that's kind of where I was coming from. Well, good. So, I mean, you kind of lean towards the side of it being incredibly important, at least during that that time frame. Uh, You know, talking to some other people just in general over time, I I do get the feeling we prioritize this clean time idea and it's really, really important. And, you know, I'm not against uh, being in recovery or, you know, abstinent from drugs, but I, I do find I have some beefs with the clean time idea. Uh, or, or at least the priority we seem to give it on top of everything else in our recovery program. Yeah, in Narcotics Anonymous, which has been my experience, so I can't right. speak too much for other fellowships other than what little bit I know from talking to various people that have attended other fellowships. But within the one that I'm most familiar with, uh, the fellowship does have a tendency to lean heavily towards abstinence from all drugs and that being of high regard of high value even in the face of you know maintenance programs sometimes even in the face of mental health medications and recommendations by doctors i would like to preface that a little bit by saying that's not necessarily the fellowship's point of view that can very much be the individual's point of view, how they're interpreting steps and traditions. We do have some language that talks specifically about what is clean, this word clean, mm. you know, which I think we've done an episode on how suspect that can be. Yeah. But, <laughs> but there is a heavy value on long-term abstinence from illicit right right and and it's fascinating especially i think my first introduction to this idea 
of there being anything but that because that was just all I thought there was, right? It was black and white. You're either on them or you're not. But then, you know, seeing a therapist who who sent me to some other programs and talked about how, you know, it's weird around our at my area at the time, Baltimore. She's like, yeah, around here, it's weird that like clean time is king amongst everything, right? It's like these programs seem to take priority over anything else. Whereas in other places, it's more like, hey, if you go to one 12-step program and that's good, I bet five of them would be better, right? Like, <laughs> you know, just explore these different options. And in some of these different programs, there are different versions of, you know, how we look at or, or how Narcotics Anonymous environment or fellowship might look at clean time, right? Because there's not specific behaviors all the time that everyone needs to adhere to avoiding. Whereas like in, in NA, you can easily say, well, clean time is just staying off of drugs. At least we think easily. And then I start arguing about sugar and caffeine and, you know, <laughs> nicotine. But like in other fellowships, people are deciding what behaviors are bad. Whereas some person might have like problem masturbation somebody else might just have problem cheating on their spouse and masturbation isn't an issue. So it's, it's not as universal and people don't subscribe to necessarily clean time from it. Just more, how long have I been in the recovery process? How long have I been following these like guidelines that me and my sponsor have set up for me? And it's less about, you know, avoiding everything, so to speak, and more about just let me include things that work healthily for me and let me maybe stay away from things that don't work out so healthily. Yeah, and I mean, from what I've heard, even in, uh, let's take like Alcoholics Anonymous, there's even some debate amongst members about, you know, is it really just about being off of alcohol or is it right. really about the whole mm -hmm. disease of addiction, which takes its many faces and forms? And is it okay to like... You know, are you still allowed to call yourself sober if you don't drink, but you smoke weed or take pills yeah. or whatever else? And even there's some issues about what specifically, you know, is important there. Yeah. Can I get a 10 year sobriety chip if I've been like sniffing cocaine here? Right. And there? Like, is that illegal? I don't know. Right. Yeah. I have no idea. It's tricky. So, before we get into too much discussion about this, we have what seems like a ton of recap. I will try to fly through it for sure. I guess you can hit skip forward on your little machines if you want. Um, one, Julie uh, contacted us and reached out and had some, some extra funds just floating over, I guess, in her uh, distinction of funds that I donate. And so she sent them our way. And thank you so much, Julie. And, and of course, Sarah and Julie, who have their regular... Uh, donation set up monthly. You know, you can find that right on our website, recoverysortof.com. There's a donate page. I think the donate button is at the bottom of the homepage. It works through PayPal. It's pretty easy. There's probably some other uh, ways to donate to us, but you know, that money goes to help the community. Yeah. All of it. We don't take any of it. Right. Right. Uh, and, and to follow through with, you got an email about some of what our money has been able to help um, people with lately. So there's a pers there's a family being helped by Voices of Hope right now, and they needed the move-in fee that's associated with providing daycare for their child. Uh, it's going to allow the individual to be able to obtain full-time employment while also having a safe environment for their kid. It's a big family perspective from Voices. Uh, they're helping the father of the child who is currently residing at a recovery house, and it will take some of the financial stress. So some of our money uh, in the fund went there. Uh, we got some clothes for someone that was at a recovery house that didn't have any clothes that they felt were appropriate for 
interviews or meetings, um, just felt really bad about themselves. So they were able to get a little bit of clothing so that they had something new to wear, you know, socks, shirts, underwear. And then another individual was able to get a pair of boots because all they had was flip-flops and they were ready to go back to work um, in recovery and they had no means to do that. So it's just incredible that this money, this is really a thing that's helping. I don't know. Like, I, you know, we come in here, we laugh, we joke, we have a good time, Billy, and, and it's always fun. And then I cuss you out as I'm editing throughout the week. <laughs> but really, like to sit back and think that, damn, people donate funds to us because they appreciate the joy that our podcast brings to their life. And then we're able to pass that on to a community organization that is really helping people with some of the stuff that doesn't get funded through grants, right? Maybe yeah, maybe there's gaps. grant funding yeah. for, you know, treatment or for housing or something. But what about the boots you need to go back to work at construction to feel like a good productive member of society or to feel good about yourself, right? I, I really want to move away from that productive member of society <laughs> thing, but right. fuck productive. Well, independence. It's, it's yeah. independence and doing what you want to feel better about yourself and your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if this recovery podcast brings any joy to your life or you feel like it adds some value, you know, and you have some money laying around that you would like to give back to the community, feel free, right? And if you don't, then just keep listening and, and get yourself in good shape, right? That's all it's about. Uh, we did get a comment on our YouTube, Adult Children of Alcoholics. That was episode 52. It was from Irina. It said, thank you. This was great. Hmm. Uh, we got another comment on our Tradition 8 episode on youtube it says great show guys i listen all the time check out our podcast friends in recovery so i have to i think i went to look that up but i don't think i've actually gotten to listen to it yet we got another suggestion that we should have the topic of na mat people on long-term recovery that are on an mat medication definitely looking for somebody to have one for that whether it's suboxone or methadone or something else that i don't know of like yeah, I've been putting some feelers out. If if you listen to the show and you've been on long-term MATs, please reach out if you're interested in being on. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah, and I think that actually kind of, you know, goes into this episode a little bit with talking about this idea of clean time. And it's it's fascinating. So when I just went to meetings, it was easy to, like, compare in and be like, oh, yeah, it's all about clean time. And I got some, and that feels good. And But then being exposed to this online world of recovery there's so many people doing it so many different ways. And I would have never known that just from going to a meeting because a lot of these people have felt spurned by meetings or, or like, you know, run out of meetings. And yet they're having great success in their life and in their recovery for years and years and years. And I'm like, oh, there, there's other ways to do this. <laughs> right. Hopefully we'll have that MAT episode coming up. Uh, we got another comment on our Tradition 8 uh, Y'all are so funny. When I first come through the door, I thought I didn't belong. Ain't that funny. I'm around other addicts, and at first I feel like I don't belong. After sticking and staying, I do feel like I belong. I'm grateful for Tradition 8 because we check our personal professions at the door not to contaminate the fellowship. Our professions can add to our experience, strength, and hope, but don't take my word for it. I'm still an addict in recovery, so I'm going to keep going. Uh, so that was nice. That was from Ivis. Thank you. And then uh, Jersey Ed said, great show, guys. So that was another comment we got. That was on our Spiritual Principle of Compassion episode. Uh, interestingly enough, which I th found this fascinating, because we just did the episode with uh, Brooke, with Moms in Recovery, the mm -hmm. family member um, that was attending meetings. And like before that came out, I think this was Thursday or something, I got a message that said, 
What about an episode on young in recovery? I know NA readings say we don't care about age, but five and a half years ago when I got clean at 20, that was not my experience. I think it is different being young and under discussed. And I was like, man, we're already talking yeah. about that. We're, we're thinking about having a youth in here because I don't think we addressed that. And like you pointed out on that family members episode, our pamphlets suck. Yeah, they're not helpful at all. And yeah. I have been thinking of two people. And, and again, if you're a listener and you fall into this category, reach out to us. Two different people from different perspectives. One was a young person that's currently you know, very active and newer in the program that has about 10 months. That was Brooke's daughter. Another is a young lady who now she has about eight years, but she got clean. She only had, I think she was like 15 or 16 when she came in. And now she's older. She's got mm -hmm. several years in recovery. But, you know, that process of starting out really young and sticking around. There's a, there's a person in Hartford County that got clean at 15. And I think she has... 19 now wow but i i just feel like it would be hard for her to remember yeah that's why i was like yeah, kind of shying away from yeah. her but but unless we had her on with another newer member like that could kind of inspire some of that that well, could be interesting and it's different to think has have things changed that much so i first came into meetings i was 17 i didn't stick around but i came in when i was 17 and when i did there was only two other young people in meetings and that was one of them now it's my wife you know that's how i got to meet her right at first was coming in she was fairly young she and she was i say young she was in her early 20s i mean mm -hmm. she wasn't even like a teenager and then there was another guy who was 19 or 20 you know and but we were the only people that felt like that were under the age of like 30 or 40 yeah which at the time felt so old now at 30 <laughs> doesn't feel that old but you know, when you're 15 30 is like half your life <laughs> <So>. <laughs> i don't remember i was like 17 being introduced to the rooms and again i didn't stay and wasn't getting much out of it at that point either but I don't know. I, I really am interested in exploring this because I do think they they fall through the cracks. And again, mine was very minor, but my minor experience as a young person in recovery, at least in this immediate area, was nobody really treated me different. I never got that felt mm. disrespected or people said rude shit to me. I had an older guy that was willing to sponsor me, an older biker dude. Never made me feel awkward or weird. I mean, it was awkward and weird because I was a teenager and he was an older person and it's just you know you just don't i mean i don't have much in common with my teenage daughters right you know? so like. <laughs> right right no i i get it i and, and i do wonder if there's i'm noticing this more and more billy the more i talk to people in uh in therapy like i think there's just a real fundamental difference about how the world treats men and women hmm. like i feel way less questioned in my decisions than i feel like women do and I feel like women just get questioned constantly of if they're right, wrong, if they're stupid, if they're like huh. anything they decide. It seems like people are like, don't hesitate to be like, you sure you want to do that? That doesn't sound real smart. Like, and I don't feel like people question me at all. And I'm like, is that because I'm a guy and I just say I don't give a fuck? And like, people don't hmm. feel like they have the right to I just come in and question. Yeah, it's been fascinating. It's been popping up a lot lately. And I'm like, fuck, man, women get questioned all the time. Huh. So I was curious if that had an effect on like your experience being younger in recovery yeah. versus, you know, what maybe a, a, a female, female might go through. Yeah. But I, I also don't, I guess from my perspective too, it's less about the disrespect, even though that's like the blatant shitty part of it. 
but it's more about like, yeah, but what are we doing to make them feel included? Like what's out there? Like, you know, we have NA softball or NA hikes or something. Well, maybe fucking 15 year olds don't want it. Maybe they need like an NA TikTok making fucking event. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. A meme camp. (laughs) Yeah. Like maybe they need some different services that like. While we're out having our softball, they're at home feeling bored and neglected. Yeah. And this area, we used to have a youth and recovery meeting. It's not around anymore, but right. we did have a youth and recovery meeting. Well, I can't start it. Yeah, I can't start it anymore either. Uh, and then on uh, the episode about the fentanyl dispensaries, uh, 148 Jersey Ed said, great show to that as well. Oh, and... Taina? I feel like I'm pronouncing that wrong, but she said thanks for the video on the Gaminon episode. Um, so lots of feedback, lots of people contributing. Makes me feel all warm in my heart yeah, like we're doing too. something good. But yeah, now that we've we've wasted a ton of time, let's get into this fucking clean time, <laughs> goddammit. So maybe, I mean, you told us kind of like how it came up for you, thinking about your anniversary and everything. What, what other thoughts have you had about it? Like, does it matter? Is it important? Where it's mattered for me is there have been times or instances in my life where, like, I've tried to tell myself, like, hey, you could probably have a couple of beers, you know, mm-hmm. hey, you, that was, you were young and that, you know, that you're probably out of that phase now and you're better now, like all those things that I would tell myself. And they, I guess, for, lack of knowing could be true. Maybe Mm -hmm. that could be true. You know, I was in my 20s. I didn't have a lot of coping mechanisms for dealing with pain and a trauma and all that stuff. I've done a lot of work to heal that stuff. And could I now successfully, you know, drink alcohol? Where where it used to come up is, and I guess still is like in like social events, you know, yeah, it would be nice to be able to go to a buddy's house and watch a football game and, you know, go to family members, eat crabs, have a beer. Like that stuff sounds productive. I see some value in, in, or, you know, yeah. That's funny. Uh, yeah. Maybe productive is not the right word. <laughs> maybe. I guess I've come to understand that using drugs in and of itself is an evil, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or any kind of alcohol, like there is some value in those experiences for different people. Mm-hmm. It becomes incredibly dangerous when it's abused or right. it's used in excess. And, you know, sure, we shouldn't be getting fall down drunk. There's all kinds of health hazards to those sorts of behaviors, you know, risk and and that. But just the using of substances people have been doing it for thousands of years in lots of spiritual practices spiritual things uh we've known lots of health benefits you know so it's like well maybe i could the fear for me and then the fact that man it's been so long and would i want to give that up you know Mm. like just this this length of time this 22 years like that's a fucking lot and Mm how easy would it be just to let that go? And so there's been times where that has been the deciding factor of like, meh, I don't think so. <laughs> That's interesting. I always used to joke with people that once you got 21 years clean, you were legal. Like you were, <laughs> you're old enough now you can drink. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. And so I, I guess just you explaining it that way and, and me having held to that same ideal for a long time and, and, guess not still I, I don't know i'm like really in a period of reevaluating all this but the idea that that feels like it could do more harm than good and, and, and i know that sounds a little weird but just this idea that like i'm sticking to this because is that ego i guess that i don't want to give up the amount of time i've been doing it because it means something about me 
or it says something about me or it's who I am now or uh, maybe. I mean, there's a little bit of ego to that, but that's the same as saying like I've been at my job for so long or I've, you know. Yes, like, that's right where I'm going. Let's, yeah. let's go that route. So, <laughs> right. so you've been at your job, say, 22 years, just like you've been clean, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that's not the case, but we're just comparing. Close 21, but. Okay. <laughs> and you get to a situation where it's like, you know, you're thinking about retirement in nine, eight, nine years, and yet your job isn't the same as it used to be. It's not bringing you fulfillment. You're not happy that whatever, maybe some things have changed, maybe ownership changed. They don't treat you right, but you're going to stay there just for the sake of staying there because you've done it so long, as opposed to going somewhere where you could be a lot fucking happier for nine years. Like, I feel like just making the decision based on the information of because I've been doing it so long really keeps us from being able to open up to am I doing what's best for me? now yes and your analogy is partially right the the i don't say partially right because there's also the risk that you might not be happier somewhere else you might just think you would be happier somewhere else because you think that other places work a certain way or do a certain thing or if you did this other thing then you would be happy Mm -hmm. but that's not always true and so there is a little bit of risk in stepping outside of what i already know you know what i know at my job now i'm pretty certain with that 20 years of being there there's some comfort although covid rocked a lot of companies and changed a lot of things for people (laughs) my my situation wasn't that case we stayed pretty consistent through but that idea that this quote unquote certainty that we think we have really probably isn't certainty at all (laughs) yeah I, I don't know. I guess the thing that bothers me about that, is, though, is it still seems like black and white thinking, right? There's very little gray area in either this other job will be better or it won't, and I can't know, and I just need to make a decision based on the information I know now, and I need to stick with that because that's the best decision I can make. Well, okay, maybe, but what about the gray area of for the job portion? Okay, I seem to be unhappy here. It seems like it might be better somewhere else. Let me leave in the you know, proper etiquette way of leaving. And if it doesn't work out somewhere else and in six months, it's miserable. Maybe I move to a new company. Maybe I come back. Like these things don't have to be like final decisions. And the fact that we treat it like I can't go out and explore if there's better options because they might be worse. Sounds more like a fear-based choice than a, like a loving choice of trying to find what's best for me in the world. Uh, could be. I mean, so we actually did that. And I say I've been at my job 21 years. I did leave for a couple of years because we sold our house and and it was similar to what you said. I had finally gotten to a place in my life where I was willing to take some risk, right. you know, and uh, say I went to my job and talked to them and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm giving you my notice. I gave them like six months notice, mm-hmm. you know, so they knew and we brought someone in and I trained them and then I left. And when that situation changed or we decided to come back and settle down back in this same area i was able to go back to my job with actually a little what i would call better perspective Hmm. and that's where some of that what i'm talking about comes from um i had some whatever you want to call it fantasies or ideas that i thought how the world worked and how everything was better and then i went and worked for a couple of different companies because during our travels, we would work at one place for a couple months and go to another place for a couple months and another place for a couple months. 
And my experience in the job thing was that it's almost like people. Like every company that you go to has its different personalities and they have some strengths and then they have some weaknesses and they have areas that they're better at than others, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. And that it gave me some perspective at the place that I'm at is like, yeah, just look at it holistically, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but the back to the clean time thing, like there's also been times in my recovery where tragedies come up and use and seem like a good option to to cope with the the pain and the emotions that I was feeling at that time and like I don't know what this is going to come to but I just don't want to feel like this anymore so Mm. using I know will alleviate that right away and not doing it because at that time I think I had 10 or 11 years clean and that was a big deal to me at that time you know right and I was like, man, do I want to give up this time? And and what comes with that for me personally is it's not just the time. It's also some relationships and that familial connection to just the 12-step fellowship that I'm involved with and the people that I know. And you know what I mean? Because it seems like making a decision to use would be stepping away from all that, even though I guess it's not because I could always come back. But. Well, and that's where it gets interesting. Like for me, God, I would hate to feel like I'm only doing this way of life just because I'm afraid I would lose some people if I chose a different way. Like the people I want in my life are not going to leave because I choose to live a little differently than I did before. Yeah. And I guess I don't look at it as a only. It's just, it's like an inventory. You know what I mean? Like, mm. let's inventory this down and see what the positives and what the negative, you know. And there's a couple of factors. Yeah. Well, and I think that's kind of what's been irking my mind lately about this whole clean time thing is that it it feels like we give it this importance. We give it this priority, even in our own life, to the extent where it could easily be in the way or prevent us from doing something that's truly better for us. But it's like we're scared to branch out or try or, or you know, if I said, um, Billy, maybe um, taping your mouth shut every night would improve your life. You might be willing to try that. You don't feel any association to like, oh, no, I've got 45 years of not taping my mouth. I'm not <laughs> fucking doing that. Right. I can't give up that streak. But like, I guess in this one area, it seems like And I'm not saying that we'd all be better off going out and using or or getting high or whatever we'd like to call it. But I do think it's interesting that there's like such a take on it. And especially coming from if you look into a a sex addiction program, right? And the fact that they have this sexual anorexia for people who've already tried to enter into the recovery process and now are scared to go back into the dating scene or scared to like they're missing out on part of their life that could bring enjoyment because of the fear. And I guess just kind of bringing that over. And I know that gets weird when we're talking about drugs, because sometimes it's hard to think of drugs having any possible benefit to our life, but maybe they do, right? Maybe some of these people who you talk about that can go out and have one or two drinks, maybe they really are getting better connections with other people because of the way that drink allows their body to be at ease in a way that they can't find without it, right? Like drugs were a coping skill. And I believe that now. I don't think it's like we're just depraved people who needed drugs. Like we were struggling people who felt in pain and we took these drugs or medicines to relieve that. So they were doing something. And I'm not saying that like, 
like you always mention the casual heroin user. Like, <laughs> I don't know either, right? I, I don't know that that's producing a lot of connectedness if you guys right. get together and do heroin on a Friday night. But I mean, with kind of alcohol, with pot, with some of these, like they are more social kind of things. Yeah, you know what I mean? Psychedelics. Or, yeah, yeah. Like these are more, I don't know. They don't feel like out there smoking crack to me. They feel like they have a very different <laughs> vibe and right. I can see possibly maybe some people are better off with that. I don't know. Yeah. And where I've landed, at least for now, which is why I'm still in the abstinence camp, is that those things are it's not the things themselves that are the problem. It's me that's the problem, you know, and the judgments that I place aren't on the users. They're on me. Like, mm. I'm the one that puts those limitations or restrictions on myself because my past behavior hasn't been, you know, that good. Right. And it's just like, and not as much anymore, but like early on in my addiction, I had a lot of uh, whatever you want to call it, like sexual relationships. I slept around a lot and was very promiscuous. That's mm. the word I was looking for. And so when I first got into recovery and got into a relationship with who's now my wife, I didn't talk to women. I didn't get their numbers. I didn't go fucking hang out with them where they were. It's like I avoided that stuff just mm. because I couldn't. I didn't want to put myself in those situations because my track record was I make fucking bad decisions when I put myself into those situations. And right. my understanding of myself and my behaviors was that I'm going to put myself in a position where I'm powerless and my character defects are going to cause me to act out of turn with the person that I want to be. And I guess that's still the case with drugs. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm. it's like, it's not, you know, it's not the women that were the problem. It's not the fact that even they might find me attractive or want to hook up. It's that I don't want to do things that aren't in alignment with my values and who I am. And my track record has been, you know, different. Now, could I talk to women or, you know, whatever? Eh, probably. I don't, maybe, you know, I don't now because it's just the habit of what I do. I could probably go through my phone and there's a few women's numbers in there that are probably just people that I could tell you, oh, this is for this responsibility or this commitment that I have mm. through NA or this person asked me to speak at a meeting, but I just don't have those relationships in my life, hmm. <laughs> you know? And am I limiting myself? Eh, probably. You know, probably. Am I missing out on some opportunities? I guess maybe, you know. Does that seem worth it? Like the trade-off? Does it seem worth it? I'm going to say yes because that's mm. a conscious choice that I make. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> that's fair. I mean, it's a fair answer. I guess I'm just and, – and, and I'm not trying to take away from – I think, mm -hmm. honestly, like I hold what you just said in an incredible amount of regard because I don't feel like – I'm capable of that. <laughs> Honestly, like I, I'm one of those people who who does. It's not that like I I flow with my emotions, but definitely like for me to say there's some things that I enjoy over there, and I'm just not going to do them because it's not worth what happens afterwards. Like I don't. That just doesn't seem like me. And I'm like, damn, Billy, that's fucking incredible that you can do that. I don't know. I just I do question. I'm like, but do you want to? Like, yes. it feels like being in a prison. And so I guess I question that too. And it's funny. I just ran into a mutual friend of ours, Jason. He was on our podcast, and I can't remember what it was. Sponsorship for. was it on sponsorship? Yeah. Okay, yeah, he was on for sponsorship. And when or I like ran when into him, change sponsors or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I haven't seen him for a while. And when I saw him, he's like. 
oh yeah, the last time I talked to you when we did the podcast, like I thought like you were on your fucking way out of NA, like you were talking about, you know, these different <laughs> ayahuasca things and all this other stuff. Right. And for me, like what I was trying to explain to him then, and it's the same that it is now, like recovery is continually a conscious choice. Hmm. I'm never putting myself in a box or, or I try not to put myself in this box where I go, well, this is just what I do and there's no fucking questions around it and I don't question anything. I just blindly follow into this way of life. Right. I like to be a person that's like, well, what other options are there? What else is out there? Could other things be better? Let's look at these things honestly and openly without these fucking preconceived judgments that I've placed on them and see like is there some value there for me because that allows me to look at the risks also mm. you know because I don't like authority and I don't like when people just tell me what to do and in fact a lot of times if I feel like I'm forced to do something I want to do the opposite of that just to prove a fucking point yes you know? <laughs> and uh so if I allow myself that space to be like I don't fucking know if NA is right for everybody. I don't even fucking know if it's right for me half the time, you know? Should I not be doing drugs? I don't know, fuck, maybe I should be doing drugs, you know? Maybe <laughs> I'm missing out on something in my life. Right. You know, I give myself that space to to think through that stuff and be honest and open about it because then I can feel more confident in the final decision that I make, you know, that I went into it with some thought, with some Foresaw, forethought and conscious decision making and I'm not just blindly following some bullshit that a couple years from now I'm going to be like what the fuck <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> these fucking assholes <laughs> right 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 no I, I get it I mean and it's I don't think there's a bad way I guess it's just uh, really been opening my mind changing my mind shifting it whatever this idea of like the more we hold on and amplify the importance of clean time the more we're taking away from anything else or any other thing that might work like it's i guess for my life it's less about how it looks and more about does it work right, right. and i feel like clean time has a look right oh oh well, that means something if you see somebody with clean time oh my god he's got 20 years that that means a certain thing to me if you say that to me and yet like we're always worried about oh we have this great anniversary we had this we have that okay so the guy celebrated 20 years and it was a nice meeting has he been miserable for the last three months and then he's going to be miserable for the next three months too because we don't ever fucking ask if he's happy right we don't ever celebrate oh he's got 20 years of happiness right, <laughs> right? I guess I feel like the focus on clean time takes away the focus from like, does it work and are you enjoying life? And that to me seems like it's going to run in butthead somewhere where there's going to be times where people are more focused on this one thing and the priority of like things working and enjoying their life is going to fall by the wayside because the focus is, nope, just got to keep that clean time. That's it. Yeah. This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet 
PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, something else you said kind of caught me. It reminded me of what we just talked about right at the end of last episode that, oh, you were talking about when people tell you to do it a certain way, you feel that counter will, <laughs> that desire to do it a different way, right? And I think this is what goes on in our heads and our bodies all the time. We talked about this idea of when we say, you know, I should be doing this or I should have been doing that. And that's the they, right? Mm -hmm. That's they saying, oh, yeah, Billy, you should have been in a meeting last night. Well, now you're going to want to go to that meeting less or at least feel like you have the option to choose less because as soon as you should yourself you are being given that direction and that forceful right. you have to do it this way and then your body interprets that and doesn't want to any fucking more it's like nope i'm gonna rebel against that counter will right and i wonder how much that plays into this idea too of like things we don't feel like we're capable of doing i know that's a little side topic to the yeah. clean time thing but well, there was another part of clean time that I kind of thought about, and I started to look it into a little bit, and I guess it really varied depending on the different drugs was, and I read a lot on opiates, and then I'm like, well, I wonder how that differs with different chemicals, but like the cognitive repair that happens in our brains over mm -hmm. time, you know, from not using substances, and I know some of that as far as repairing your like rewards pathways and all that's like some of that can take years of time. Like, you know, it's not like we just stop using and that then all of a sudden we're better, especially if we've been on long-term opiates. I imagine it would be the same with long-term, uh, what do they call it? Like crystal meth and the mm. amphetamines and shit. Like, I don't know. Alcohol probably has some long-term oh, brain yeah. effects yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know about marijuana. It definitely affects short-term memory. Yeah. nothing else. But it's like there is some actual cognitive benefit we know with opioids specifically of that it takes a, a, a long time, months if not years of time to repair those neural pathways because what happens our system, you know, gets used to having all those artificial, uh, what are they called, the opioid uh, the dopamine? Dopamine, yeah, mm -hmm. dopamine. We get used to having all that artificial dopamine, and that becomes our coping mechanism for pain to the point where, like, even minor pain now feels fucking excruciating because our bodies don't have a natural way to deal with pain anymore. Right, and I, I do think some of the problem, and, you know, we love to look at our research and say it's wonderful and amazing, and we've researched so many things, and we have, but our understanding of the brain and the body is still so infantile, honestly. Yeah. It's so new, and, and we don't know. And, and yes, do they have those studies? Sure. But do we know for sure that that always grows back or comes back? No. Yeah, and I'm sure it's unique to individuals. And I read it from both perspectives, from the abstinence perspective and from the MAT perspective. So from the more the MAT perspective is that's why you need to be on some kind of artificial mm. controlled thing so that they can taper you down and get to a place you can manage 
the cravings and manage some of that because if you're on an incredibly high amount of opiates and then you just take that away well your body literally crashes like you can't fucking function and so the cravings become so overwhelming that you go back so that's where an mat program at least the way they talked about it in this particular thing was you would be on that they would slowly taper you down to give you that time to get back to a a more natural state i I guess my defense or or my problem with that is what i'm picturing is okay you have somebody they got 15 years they got this clean time they're unhappy it doesn't feel like these chemicals have ever returned to the right state they do feel like they still struggle with the reward system and feeling connected and at peace in their body but we're going to like moralize with them about whether they should use again. You know what I mean? We're going to say automatically clean time is the best. No, don't try anything else. Don't try an MAT program with 15 years clean. That you know, that's terrible. Why would you go backwards? We have a judgment about clean time being better, and we don't know that. Like there's no studies out there that that have really been able to prove or disprove whether these deficiencies in the reward system exist before you ever touch a drug. So maybe these deficiencies already just exist in some people's bodies, and that's why they went to drugs. And then they stop, and now what? Well, no, you're just supposed to stay clean. Why, what do you mean you can't be fucking happy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're, we're going to use this information and this, the way we look at clean time, and we're going to use it as a, a system of judgment. And it's going to make other people feel like they can't try things that might be solutions because they're holding on to this one solution that we've given, which is just be fucking clean long enough and it'll get fixed. Yeah, that is definitely a thing that I would say happens definitely within our fellowship. And I have been guilty of it for a lot of years myself that I try not to do as much now. I think over the time of not just doing this podcast, but getting involved with some of the harm reduction stuff and looking at some of those things and realizing, like, I think as a society, we like to hear, and this is what I believed when I first got clean and got into NA, like there's fucking one size fits all Mm -hmm. program for drug addiction treatment. And if everybody would just do this one thing, then we'd all be fine. And I think we as individual members tend to fall into that same fucking line of thinking, which is stupid. You know, it's it's just if you think of it from a, you know, broader perspective, like most of these complicated problems in our life take more than just one solution to fix them. We're not all coming to the game with the same tools. We're not coming with the same mental, you know, space, different health issues, different mental health issues, you know, but we'll think this one thing should just fix everything. And that's a mistake. And I've fallen into that for a long time, you know. All these other programs are shit, you know. This is the only one that works, and this way is the way that everybody fucking needs. And now I'm not that guy anymore. I mean, I've recently sponsored a guy that was struggling, and he's been in and out. And he's, I'm like, hey, man, you know, I, what else are you looking at? Are you looking at some other things? Like, maybe this fucking isn't the mm. right place for you. Right. I don't, I can't say that it is. I mean, I personally think he's got some mental health issues that he doesn't want to address. And I don't know that coming here is going to fix what he needs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And looking back at that, I mean, it's easy to come to that idea when we first get here, I think, because, you know, most of us have tried 300 ways of making our use and work. And so, like, 
to find the one that has worked for us so far, of course we're going to think this is the one right. way that works, right? Like we we know at least three hundred that didn't, <laughs> right? But yeah, it is a it is a small view. It's not a view of like, oh, well, this worked for me. Maybe other things work for other people. I guess one of the the beefs too that I maybe was coming or working through through doing this podcast around the twelve step fellowship is like, I don't want to accept that it's not the place for everyone. Like, I want the place to adapt and be the place for everyone so that we can continue to do what we do, but I can feel better about it now. And maybe that's not going to happen, right? Maybe maybe NA is just the complete abstinence tool, and maybe we need to invent some other place or space that holds room for everybody else. Well, I'm hoping through places like Voices of Hope or some of these other community partners or the gentleman, I can't remember his name, from Vancouver that talked about their big recovery fair. Like, I hope we're going to continue to build things like that where we bring the recovery community together instead of being a bunch of people in these different tribes that don't sort of cross over. (laughs) The difficulty with the 12-step fellowships is we have specifically traditions that say – these the twelve step fellowships have traditions that say they don't endorse or affiliate other programs, right. so that gets a little tricky. That can get a little hairy at times, but I definitely think people, at least my experience with most people in twelve step fellowship in this area, are that they're starting to come around a little bit. We're starting to get a little more open minded. You're starting to see some ideas change around different MAT programs and what's considered clean or not clean. I mean, if I had to say, I'd say the majority of people still say that someone on an MAT program is using or not clean. To be quite honest, I'm not even 100% sure where I fall at the moment, Hmm. you know, on that. It would probably be more an individual thing where I'd have to sit down and talk to the fucking person. I mean, I'm not going to place a judgment on them. I would still encourage them to keep doing what they're doing. But as far as if I could tell them, yeah, come to N.A., you'll feel welcomed and loved here. I don't think that's going to happen. You know, at least that's not where we're at right now. And I'm on the fence as to whether I think that should or shouldn't happen. You know, I really am. So, so you're you're actually bringing us around, which is a great segue into. I feel like I had this real beef with the word "clean" in mm. general that I wanted to, you know, broach on this episode, and we haven't even brought it up yet. <laughs> We're a yeah. long ways into it, but I think you're segueing us right there. So that's the fucking issue to me is that we one okay. So first, we decided to use this word "clean." Sounded like a good idea. I get it. I'm not blaming nobody, but it's based on the urinalysis. Right, the urinalysis test you took was either clean or negative for drugs in your system, or by default dirty or positive for drugs in your system, and that language has infiltrated. Right, so now Billy is clean, but someone on MATs is dirty. Not that we say that, but that's the default conclusion. Which I mean, language we're learning more and more in therapy. Language matters. Like we've we believe the research exists that shows that there's people who have not been able to heal from past events because they didn't have a word for the feeling that they felt during those events. And like once they're given a word to describe it, like in a language to describe what they went through, they can then proceed to healing from it. So that's a fascinating thing all in itself, but it does say like language matters, how we talk about things matters. So to call people clean on one end is calling other people dirty and that sucks. But what that leads to is that this whole idea of clean time is like a purity test for your sobriety. But it's not just like 
oh, Billy, did you do your purity test for you today? We as a whole fellowship have decided we're going to do this like field purity sobriety test for everyone around us. And why? What the fuck difference does it make? Like, why do I care if the guy on MATs says he's celebrating a year? Like, why do I need to fucking go to home groups or vote against him being able to celebrate in a in my home group? Who gives a fuck if he's happy and his life is good? Like, if anything, I'm shaming him out of there. Yeah, and there's a couple issues there that need worked out. One is the idea of shaming them or whatever is the wrong way to go about it. Like, that's I don't think that's necessarily the position of the fellowship. That's more position of the individuals who take that shaming or you're not clean or any of that stuff. But, and this is where I struggle personally, but the, the idea that our program, when you look into it, the wording, the things, when we read these readings in the beginning of the meetings that say, you know, who we are and why we're here and what the program's about, talk about abstinence from all drugs and learning these principles and apply them in our life. And, you know, that's what we say that we're doing here. So if someone's not specifically Mm. doing that, then maybe this isn't the right place for them to celebrate what they're doing. Mm. The shaming part is a little different. Like that's a dirtier part of that comes along with, (laughs) you know, I'm doing this. This is what's the right thing to do. You're fucking doing something else and you're not even clean. Like that's the dangerous counter. Yeah. But I guess even in the, even within the 12 step, fellowship or program or however we'd like to look at the meetings like i guess the the whole thing is i'm trying to hold on to this this community of purity right no we've got a monitor we can't let anyone who's used an mat today speak in a meeting jesus what if they say the wrong thing that the new person gets introduced to and or what if the new member sees that person celebrating a year and they share that they've been on suboxone the whole time well god now that new member will think that's the way to go and they'll all choose that direction and like it's all about this like purity uh, of what clean time means and like why can't i just trust i mean people get up there with clean time that have legit clean time <laughs> to share some crazy shit right. that was going to misguide people anyway like, well, that's what i was just going to say too yeah like but why do we hold on to this purity around it like why can't i just let that person celebrate the accomplishment they've made which is in their minds clean why do why does my version of clean have to be on top of that Like, okay, sure. They say they're clean. And especially, I guess it comes into play like, so a guy called me recently and he was like, hey, uh, I've been seeing this girl. She comes from AA. She's got like two and a half years sober. She's about to celebrate her third year coming up at a NA meeting because she's been going there since she moved to this neighborhood. It's just more inclusive for her, I guess. But she's been using medical marijuana during her recovery time. He's like, look, we hang out. We have a great time. She never looks high or seems high. She's just like, she uses it, I guess, as prescribed or as she needs it. He's like, and a friend of mine who also knows the situation was talking to me about how they feel like we should probably say something to her home group or bring it up. And I'm like, he's like, I don't see how that benefits anybody ever. He's like, she's happy. She's doing the thing. She's practicing what she believes is recovery. And her life is good. He's like, why the fuck? How would not allowing her celebrate benefit anyone? And I I was with him. I'm like, yeah, why the fuck would we say anything? It's none of our goddamn business. Well, 
I mean, to me, immediately, what I think is our reading that we read in the beginning says we are a program of complete abstinence from all drugs. Like, that's what... Except tobacco and caffeine and sugar. Right. And I mean, anything prescribed Well, you could to you. go down that road, but the fellowship <laughs> has a general understanding of what that means. 99.9% of the people have come to an agreement. I disagree. And I'll tell you why. So one of the things that I was reading about coming up to this episode, right, it said... What might be a medically necessary anti-anxiety pill for one person in recovery could be a drug that's routinely misused by another. Medication that's critical for people with ADHD to function could be the same thing that hands a different person or lands a different person back in rehab. And I don't think this is quite the same now. I think we've we've stepped back more percentage-wise as a fellowship from talking about people's whatever prescribed Xanax or prescribed antidepressants, yeah, but when I came all. around <laughs> around like 99, 97, like these were major hot button issues. Like people yeah. in NA definitely had, there was meant much more percentage that had an opinion about you not being clean if you were on an anxiety medication right. or on this, or if you were prescribed pain medicine because you had a severe back flaw or whatever. Like people definitely looked at you and talked about you behind your back in certain ways. And I feel like that's changed a, a lot. But I wouldn't say it's like 99% sold in our fellowship about what's clean or not. Like, No, when I said that, I was talking specifically about like tobacco or coffee, nicotine, or even over-the-counter vitamins. Like I don't – I think most people would say those things are not using compared to different drugs, street drugs or medication that you get from a doctor or whatever. But the anxiety and the mental meds, I could see, yeah, that's probably yeah. a little more debatable. But that's a lot of old school thinking, too. Like, as we become more educated, I think we start to understand, like, mental health issues and certain mental health issues. Of course, now we're debating a lot of that in the medical community. But right, that mental health issues can be treated, you know, if someone's chemically out of balance, you can balance them by adjusting the chemistry in their brain. Like, that's a thing. Okay. So just think about the exact statement you just made, right? That's old school. That's, uh, you know, we're getting better understandings as we learn more. That's exactly what I'm saying about now with us in the, the MATs, <laughs> right? Like, I, my, my beef is that I feel like everybody's old school and not paying attention to what's working and keeping people alive. And, and we're not caught up. Like, so this is only 20 years ago that we were still kind of really shitty about, you know, benzos and, and pain medicine if your doctor prescribed it and all these things. And, like, we've, we've come over 20 years to understand, like, okay, maybe there's times that medicine or a.k.a. drugs are good for you or needed. Why can't we grow up and get there? <laughs> well, at least at the moment. And it, it could change. I mean, there's a process for changing that within the fellowship, so to speak. But currently, the current, whatever you want to call it, view from world services and who makes the decisions of those things in Narcotics Anonymous, which is supposed to be back to the individual members, right? but is that. We don't necessarily have an opinion like we don't say those things are great or not great or whatever within Narcotics Anonymous. What we say is that's not what we're doing here. We don't treat drugs, addiction with a drug. We treat addiction with the 12 step model. And that's 
what we're doing. And there's nothing wrong with those other things. They're not bad. We shouldn't place our personal judgments on that shit. That's harmful and that's negative to people. But in this fellowship, we're kind of going about this this way. Should that change or could it change? I, I think there's benefit to seeing it change. I think hopefully we'll see some programs that are more open to that sort of thing. The risk that I think immediately comes up isn't necessarily for someone like myself who can probably have a little bit more stability in my life. What I think about immediately, and I know this has come up with recovery houses in the area, is you have a recovery house and you have a couple people that are on a maintenance program and then you have a couple people that are trying to do the abstinence program. And you know what I mean? If I mean, I don't know. I'm just be honest. Some people that are on high doses of methadone look fucking high and they act high. And I know maybe that they're abusing the program and maybe that's a bad example. But a lot of times people that are using a substance look like they're using a substance. Sometimes they don't. And some people manage it really well or on incredibly low doses. But there's a risk there when you're in this recovery house and now you got a guy who's bringing home his fucking weekend take homes and you're in this recovery house with 40 days clean trying to figure out your fucking life and deal with your own cravings. And he's got a thing, you know, didn't you spend your first three months living in a house with using people? I did, but <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. And that is that's risky. Like if we're talking yeah. about, Is you it? know, I mean, it didn't change your outcome. It didn't change mine, but it forced me to make some decisions. Like I definitely didn't feel comfortable at my home. I definitely pushed myself to like go out to more meetings and stay outside, stay out later. Uh, in some recovery houses, you don't have that option. Right. You have to be home certain amounts of time. You have a curfew, you have meetings, you got to deal with those people. I was, had no restrictions, so I could avoid the people that were using or leave or go away when I wanted to go away. It's funny. Uh, no. And, and look, and I get this, this is using some very specific anecdotal evidence about mm. you kind of against you. Um, <laughs> but like, it's funny okay. that the thing you're saying could present itself as a risky situation for potential new people is actually something that happened in your life and led you to be more involved in recovery because to avoid the people using yeah, in your oh, house, yeah. you spent more time out of the house around recovery. And people. I will actually say that when I share, I'm like, I don't recommend this to people that, you know, the recommended information is it, but I don't necessarily recommend to people that get in a relationship either. And I did that and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess what I'm saying is the situation that we're now pegging as a possible risky situation, we at least have evidence of one time when it worked out that that pushed you in a better direction. Yeah. And it's like, damn, so is that really as risky as we make it out to be? Or are people going to do what's best for them? Why don't, I mean, I can only ask like as what you know of recovery, like if you know someone is trying to get their life straightened out, whether it's clean or not clean or whatever. They're trying to get their life straightened out and they're living in a home that has a bunch of chaotic use and a bunch of, you know, other stuff going on. Like would the recommendation be like, yeah, just stay there. You'll be fine. Or would it be like, Hey, it's probably would be a little easier if you could get out of that situation, get yourself stable. And then maybe you can go back or whatever. You can visit that later. Right. But in the, when you're in crisis mode, like crisis mode, stability and some accountability and reliability is probably going to help. <laughs> I mean, definitely. If you said 
Jason, what's the ideal situation for a recovering person or someone entering recovery? It's not going to be in a house full of using people, that's right. for sure. And yet, time and time again, when I've made predictions about new people who walked in the door and their situations, <laughs> I have been wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, for obviously, sure. I have no fucking clue what the ideal situation is that actually would work. And, and what I have learned is that people go through, it seems like, exactly what they need to go through to get to where they need to get. So. Maybe I just don't need to have so many fucking opinions about holding on to this purity or non-purity. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like, and I guess when we start getting into like Xanax, you know, and some of these other medications that really are still a little questionable, even to me and you, right? Yeah. Like, I, I'm so, if somebody says Xanax, my first thought is, huh, are they abusing it? Yeah. <laughs> always, always. Even with people I see that aren't in meetings, even with people I see in yeah. session, I'm like, how do they use that Well, because Xanax? don't they prescribe a lot of that based off self-reporting? Like, there's no specific blood work or brain chemistry that most of the time that anybody's getting done. Right. I mean, there are ways to test that stuff, but most of the time... You go to see a psychiatrist, you talk about how anxious you get when you're in the fucking supermarket and they prescribe you some zannies and that's that. So that's where some of this gets a little tri tricky is a lot of it's just self-reporting. And obviously, you know, we know like what I consider extreme stress could be very different to you and what you consider extreme stress. So Right. Well, and, and it says, you know, in, in relation to this, too often, however, people in recovery feel that they have to meet the clean purity test. All that does, however, is exclude people from recovery spaces and make people feel ashamed for taking what could be life-saving medications. And so, okay, say you have 10 people that have Xanax and you've run into them in meetings and, and they're all prescribed it. And five of them use it properly so to speak and the other five maybe they are lying or or whatever to their psychiatrist and just getting these to use them as a high right say that's the case are we defaulting to well fuck it all 10 of these people have to be shamed about it because of that you know what i mean like in in not letting the the five who aren't using them correctly so to speak not float by and just do whatever they want we're also kind of censoring the five that are doing it properly you know what i'm saying or maybe a better uh, scenario is like you have these five people who are prescribed by psychiatrists xanax and you can see them in meetings they look fucked up as hell they're high they're not getting a job they're not doing nothing recovery looking in their life and then you have these five people on mat who all look like their life is vastly improved they hold jobs they're now parents to their kids who they were fucking ignoring they're doing all these positive things and yet because of the distinction we want to hold to clean we will not let those five people celebrate in our meeting who are really living a recovery type life and getting better and improving but we will let the five people who are prescribed xanax who aren't doing shit with their life celebrate because that's legal like, that's where I fucking come into problems with this. Like, we're deciding for other people based on this one purity test, so to speak, of clean. And, like, recovery looks like recovery to my mind, right? Like, And yeah. I'm not saying we should switch it and not let the five people on Xanax Well, my understanding, they could just go to AA and celebrate over there. <laughs> right, right. Well, maybe that's the answer. Yeah. Just send everybody to AA. <laughs> but it just it yeah. just doesn't feel right to me. That like we're limiting these people's ability to celebrate their success because we want to hold on to whether they're purely successful or clean or not. I don't know that we're limiting. I mean, again, there's been some different 
programs around for those different versions of recovery. There's nothing to stop them. I don't I think the original AA pretty much gives the steps to anybody who wants to do them if they want to do the step version yeah. or there's, you know, recovery dharma that's not based in the 12 steps that has nothing to do with abstinence or any of that. So there are becoming more readily available yeah. uh, fellowships for that stuff. The other thing is, as when we talk about recovery spaces or recovery communities, I hope that those things are opening up, at least from what I see, it looks like those things are opening up more. Um, at, in this immediate area, it's getting better. You know, it's probably not hopefully where we should be, but you will find within specifically within the abstinence based 12 step groups, they're not as open minded, but that's like church. You know, All everybody right. that's a Christian that goes to church thinks everyone else is going to hell and dying. You know, it's like, does it make church a bad place? I mean, that's a judgment you could say like, oh, well, you think that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to burn in hell and suffer the rest of my life. Like, that's fucking terrible. So but I don't go to their church and demand that they let me fucking come there and celebrate my God in my way. I just say, oh, well, you're doing that over there. Have fun. Do that. I'm going to come here and do my thing my way. I mean, that's the way I yeah. look at it. It's, But you're right. There is a lot of judgment and shame that I think as a recovery community, we could certainly do a lot better with. I mean, not, again, I was guilty of it for a long time, probably until the last 10 years of my recovery where I – and it's been a slow process. It's not like one day I woke up and went, yeah, fucking MAT programs are great. It was right. like – well, I don't know. That's fucking legal using. Like, that's all that is. And these programs are, you know, then it shifted to the programs are taking advantage of addicts. And, you know, then it got to be like, God, people just, I wish so many people wouldn't suffer and die. Maybe if we could get them into some kind of programs better than nothing, you know. And, man, can't we just help people to try to live better? Like, you know, so it's progressed to a place. And now I just try to perpetuate those conversations when they come up with people that are in my immediate recovery network. But I'm not going to go into my home group and demand that we let someone on an MAT program celebrate. I mean, I totally would. Yeah, I, I just I and again, I struggle. I go back and forth. You know, I, I really do go back and forth. And then, you know, it's the same. Like what is where I struggle the most is what is you know, medication prescribed by a doctor. Like if you're on a meta MAT program for an opiate use disorder and there is some medical research that says that that approach is safer and healthier than just complete abstinence after long-term use. Like, you know, I have my own moral struggles there and, and moral dilemmas, but I go back to, for me, it's like, well, this is NA and what it does. And that's, if I don't like it, I don't have to go. I They don't have the fucking end-all, be-all of recovery. They don't have some resource that isn't available to everyone else, you know, that I can't go somewhere else and get. I'll just, you do you over there, and I'm going to figure out what works for me. I, I got to be honest. For me right now, it definitely feels like, so I remember watching Facebook uh, comments and posts and statuses and all this stuff over the, you know, the last five years and like there'll be a thing that happens to that seems like a really unfair practice from a, a police institution towards a minority right 
And some people will kind of get an up in arms about it. And then some other people will argue back. They should have followed the law and this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. And, and then the next time it happens, like three to six months later, a few more people are posting like, ah, you know, I was kind of on the other side of this debate, but this really is starting to look <laughs> yeah. pretty shady, right? And then like over time, like, and then the George Floyd thing happens and I see even more people are like, ah, you know, I've been fucking denying this for a long time, but it's kind of hard to argue. It feels like that same thing with people dying in recovery. It, and I get it. Like NA is not supposed to be a top down entity where like the top gives the rules and we all decide to follow them. But it does feel like we've all held on to this like strong belief like, nope, NA's the way. Total clean time. Complete abstinence. This is what works, right? And everybody that's fallen off, they just need to fucking get on board. They need to surrender. What's wrong with them? And I feel like every death that goes on within the community, I see more and more people like, you know what? I don't fucking know, but I'm tired of seeing people die. And maybe right. I don't need to hold to this fucking complete abstinence ideal so strongly that I'm possibly contributing to the reason these people aren't coming back. Yeah. And it's fear is a tricky thing because we do. It's easy to say, like, we shouldn't make decisions based in fear. And that is not always true. Like, fear has some relevance. You know, there is some, there's certain areas where, like, I should be fearful. You know, I shouldn't go drive my car down the road at 185 miles an hour, just mash the fucking gas to the floor because I need to get somewhere quickly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I should have some fear, like, oh shit, this is dangerous and I could kill myself. Like, so there are rational fears that we have. I think the issue is we have to try to balance those fears. You know, it's like, and I hate to say it, Jenny, in the fucking middle path all the time. But Always it's like, I have to, yeah, goddamn Buddhist. I have to try to find like, okay, so is this fear overwhelming my rational decision making? And is it overpowering, you know, some some healthy things in there right. or is there some relevance to this fear like let's take a look at what the fears are what the risks are in doing this and try to weigh them against you know right and i think that abstinence you know come hell or high water no matter what is a part of that like yeah there's a fear that if we tell people that it's okay to be on an mat program or to to get on mental health medications or to you know, get on whatever marijuana maintenance, like those are all drugs that people abuse. So there's definitely some risk and some fear there that mm -hmm. they could be abused. There is some reason to be fearful there because mm -hmm. that's the history of the people that we're talking about. You know what I mean? My history is that I will abuse drugs and medications no matter who the fuck gives them to me, mm -hmm. no matter if I know better or not, I am not always the best judge. And if you ask me, uh, most of the time, at least in my addiction, I'm probably going to lie and tell you whatever I got to tell you to get more because more is always better. Like, right. That's the track record. So take this word clean and let's move into uh, other sources of diseases. If you got cancer, right, sometimes your body's better able to fight that off. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the treatment you get is the right treatment. Maybe sometimes it wasn't. But, like, we wouldn't give more eh, priority or prestige to an individual who battled cancer and was able to fight it off for 20 years as opposed to someone who succumbed to it in five. We wouldn't say, oh, yeah, their, their cancer didn't come back for 20 years after they had it cut out. So they're obviously better people than the people who 
you know, it came back five years later. So the analogy I would use similar to that, and it's funny because I just heard this. I know we had Drew on to talk about, you know, his MS and his struggles with that and Mm -hmm. how his walking and all that stuff. And then I watched a television program. It's called Alone. A bunch of people go live out in the woods by themselves. And this lady had MS and her whole adventure into this outdoor wilderness stuff had to do with her MS and she couldn't walk and she was on this ration of medications from the doctor and it was getting progressively worse. she took a holistic natural approach started changing her diet using natural remedies some like uh chinese medicines and herbs and things like that she just spent 40 fucking days out in the woods completely by herself providing all her own food and all that other stuff mm-hmm. so i would say recovery abstinence-based recovery is more that it's not like a willpower where i just go well i'm just going to stop using and you can't so you suck it's like no i'm going to take this different for lack of a better word i'm going to say holistic or natural approach you know and try this because recovery at least the way i understand it isn't just not using drugs it's addressing your issues and working the steps and learning spiritual principles learning coping skills and all that stuff so i for right or wrong, you can judge me however you want. I always think those more natural or holistic approaches to illnesses and diseases are safer and better and the way that our bodies are designed versus just putting a chemical in to fix things. Mm -hmm. I know that's not true for every case. I know if you have certain diseases, you can't fucking willpower your way through. I mean, you know, you can't naturally holistically fix like an arm that's been snapped in half. Like you need a fucking doctor to set that shit and a cast or, but the idea is that if I can do things that maybe aren't just, let me just take this pill and fix this thing. I can do some other work to fix it. You know, that to me always seems better. Yeah, but that, I guess there's always this judgment of like, which way is better? And that shames people and keeps them stuck in, well, I can't do this way. Even though it's working for me, I can't do it. That's why I don't, I, yeah. And I, that other way is better. I don't know. I, I try not to place the judgment of better on other people's decisions. Well, I feel like that's what the clean time purity test is about, though. It's about placing the judgment of better on someone else's decisions. Exactly. Because I feel like that's what we're doing. Look, if we said clean time was what mattered or, or we came up with a better word for it because I really do want to move away from clean, right? But if, if recovery time matters and that's important and we each take stock of our own, that's between, which I think it even might even say this in our literature, that's between you, your higher power, and your sponsor or something like that. I've at least heard that idea if it's not written out. <laughs> might not be written out because I don't think sponsors mentioned in there. But anyway, if we left it at that, and weren't like trying to police the aspect of everybody else's clean time, I might be all right with it. But we don't. We we have it's a fucking purity test. Well, the policing though comes down to the individuals. Like I've heard both ways. There are home groups that have let people celebrate or or you know what I mean, just not done that. And then I've heard other groups where they're very specific against people doing that. But does it come down to the individual when we have a pamphlet that lays out and spells out that you are not? Like we have a pamphlet that says you cannot use these substances to treat addiction and still be clean. Right. So it's like specifically about an MAT program right. or a, if you're treating addiction. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's. But it's got one that says about like the mental health medications that it's between you and prescribed by a doctor. 
Yeah, I don't know. So then that's where it gets tricky. And then the whole marijuana one throws everything in a fucking world because up until <laughs> what? three four years ago like well maybe let's say five at this point like most places were like marijuana is a drug and it's illegal except if you're in colorado them fucking hippies are out there smoking weed you know <laughs> whatever just go out to colorado to like we've moved to this place where it's gosh almost legal everywhere i mean yeah. it's and almost recreationally legal mm-hmm. which isn't a good or bad thing to me i mean it's just whatever it's fine it's if alcohol's legal what's the difference right but then you have this idea of needing a medical marijuana card that's mixed in there somewhere, which I think is just a like a gateway to just making it fucking legal for everybody. I don't know. Right. I think it was just too hard for most people to go from like this was an illegal drug three years ago to now anybody can just buy it at the grocery store. Like, right. <laughs> there's right. Some, we're, we're going through a transitional phase, but. At least my understanding from anyone I've ever talked to, including my experience with my own mom, is it takes about five minutes going to a doctor to get a medical card. And you can almost walk in there and just be like, my knee fucking hurts all the time and I don't want to take pain pills. Can I get some marijuana card? And they go, okay. And that's it. And Perfect. Yeah. And then the thing for me, the issues that I have around that, especially for people using it, is there doesn't seem to be a clear, like regimen or like prescribed use practice that's like this is safe use this is moderated use and this is like excessive use and so it's easy to say like i'm on a marijuana maintenance program and then i just walk around high as fuck all the time you know i mean that's very that's a personal like i'm the only one regulating that And the judgment falls completely on me as to how much I smoke, how often I smoke it, what functions I do. There's no clear policy (laughs) around. Why is it so hard for our society to just be okay that other people want to do other shit? (laughs) Like, I feel like we constantly have real decisions that need to be made about what people's function and capabilities are when they're under the impairment of anything. Well, I, okay, so I, I do kind of want to move away from that. We're getting lengthy here, and we got a lot to. But I, I guess for me, if we do consider this a disease, if that's what we're all buying into, and that's what we say in our program, it's a disease. The point of that is, like, if somebody's irresponsive or not responsive to the treatment that we would give for cancer or for some other disease that we know, we would not say they're not as good as the other person next to them who was responsive. Right. Or who had more continual responsiveness to treatment instead of any setbacks in it. We're not going to look at that person and say, oh, you're, you, you didn't live up to that person over there who had all the responsiveness. So why do we look at that in the same light? Like we'll say, oh, Billy, you've got 22 years. You're incredible. But the guy who's worked the same program as you, who uses every 10 months, three times and then comes back, he's not as good. Because that's definitely the connotation clean time has. He's never been as successful, even though he's got 22 years of I use three times every 10 months and then grow in between. Like he's looked at differently than the member who has 22 years of consistent yeah, clean time. Yeah, I would time. agree. And why? Like it's a disease. Some some treatment doesn't work as well for some people as others. So why are we judging? We're still judging the moral capability of that person as opposed to the disease. Yeah. I I mean, I I guess I'm trying to look at that as far as people that come back from a relapse and they're getting involved in like service commitments or what 
they do. I mean, this is totally just anecdotal and been my experience, but, and I can't even, I'm going to use the word a lot and have no basis of mathematics to judge that on, but it seems like, or my experience has been that people that come back from relapses, if they aren't very brief, tend to be different people than they were before they left. And that is maybe a little bit moral. I don't, I don't mean it to be moralizing. I just mean my observation from an individual that's got 10 or 15 years clean, that's been living a type of functional life, and then that goes out and uses for three or four years and then comes back. They're different people. They're not the same person. They And, and mm -hmm. usually to the detriment, usually mm -hmm. to a deterioration. Well, and that's one of the things it mentions in here. I'm sorry. I know I cut you yeah, off sorry. there. But it talks about in AA, there's no distinction or an NA between a slip and a full-blown relapse, which it also went into some other stuff about how lapse and relapse are actually words that come with moral fucking mm -hmm. problems mm -hmm. from religion and everything. But basically it says that smart recovery does have a make, make a distinction between these two. And they talk a lot about how a slip need not turn into a full blown relapse. Yeah. I would right? agree with that. Yeah. Um, and you know, smart recovery stresses that the guilt over a slip can make it go towards a full blown, blown relapse if the person views lapsing as a form of failure, which I feel like the 12 step program yeah. absolutely does. Yeah, for sure. Right. And why, if it's a disease, do we consider being not responsive to treatment a failure? Well, let me, I, I do. Cause you just reminded me of something and I'm like, well, well, you know, I want to push back a little bit on the idea. So nowhere in the 12 steps or the traditions, does it, talk about this idea of celebrating clean time. Correct. That's something that as individuals we have implemented through this series of key tags, through yeah. the celebration of anniversaries and things like that. Yeah, I don't know how that came about or what the rationale behind that was. That feels like it's more Judgment. something that just some people started to do that's, that's implemented as a you know, quote unquote, regular practice. Uh, but I can say I've been to other areas and they don't celebrate anniversaries the way that we do, at least in this immediate area, right. that it's kind of like at the end of the meeting, they'll go, oh, is anybody, you know, want to talk about any clean time birthdays or they right. call them different things. And then maybe someone will get up and go, yeah, I got so many years and they go, oh, that's great. And they give them a class and that's fucking it. That's all that it is. It doesn't seem to be as prevalent. Um, so I will say in this area, that seems to be a pretty prevalent thing that we celebrate mm -hmm. anniversaries the way that we do, that we push this clean time that way that we do. And I think that does perpetuate some of these problems that you're talking about. Well, it's like this view of like, uh, you know, if your kid eats a piece of pie that you had saved for yourself in your fridge, you're probably like, ah, that sucks. But, you know, I hope they enjoyed it. If your roommate eats something you had for yourself in your fridge at a recovery house, you're probably pretty pissed off about it, right? So mm -hmm. the same action can have different feelings depending on how we think about the action. And, and what they're getting at with this is that if you live in the abstinence violation effect is what they've called it, you look at uh, a use or a slip into drug use as a complete and total failure. And now, you know, you have this feeling of shame and guilt and I have to come back to the meeting with my tail between my legs. Whereas if you look at a slip as an opportunity to learn about what triggers you and plan how to not have it happen again, it's then a positive. And so it's like these very two different feelings. I have never 
seen somebody who relapsed come into NA and be like, oh my God, it was so cool. I learned this thing about myself that when I feel these certain feelings, I can't tolerate them. Like, that's never the feeling. It's always like, man, I'm so depressed. I gave up my time. Like, and I wonder how much we contribute or, or yeah. that idea contributes to it. Well, I have to go back and read read it at the moment, but like the recovery and relapse chapter, like they do put some, I'm going to call it like positive spins on right. relapse. They do mention, you know, hey, this can be a thing that motivates you to work a little more or look yeah. at some different things. The and there is <laughs> a lot of shame, at least what I remember in there. I'd have to read through it again to look for shameful statements. But <laughs> I remember the it could be the nuclear blast that brings about a more vigorous application of yeah. our program. <laughs> and I know like at times when people have come back, like I always try to be a person like, hey, man, welcome back. Like, you know what I mean? I'm glad you're here. You know, don't it's you're still here. You're still alive. You're just working forward. Like don't, but I will say within the fellowship and, and definitely even amongst myself, like there is some judgment placed on how much time people have, but yeah. I think that's more of an expectation. Imagine you got three months and you go into a group conscience and the guy with one year is debating one side of an issue and the guy with 22 is debating the other side. Who are you going to side with? <laughs> yeah. But so you as a therapist, if you talk to a therapist that just got out of school and just became a therapist or a therapist who's been doing it for 20 years. You know what I mean? Like the one with 20 years would s typically seem to have Ooh, the more information. I don't know. The information I've heard, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> well, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. But, I mean, well, let's take carpentry or some other right, skill. Like right. the general rule is the person that has been doing it successfully longer is going to yeah. be the person that, you know, would be quote unquote, more of an expert or right. whatever. And of course we know in recovery, that's not always the case. I mean, and it's not the case in every situation. There could be shitty carpenters for 20 years and they've oh, just yeah. done terrible fucking work. But if you said to the guy, oh, this is a guy that's been doing carpentry for 20 years, you would assume like, right. he knows what he's doing. Well, and, and I guess that's the interesting thing. Like, so are you not as good at your job because you took a three year break or are you just as good? Like, would you have been better being there for three more years? I doubt it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so the experience of being at different companies helped shape different things that I do now. And then some of it's just life experience. Well, I guess just this idea that we look at it as consecutive. Like, this, mm. this only matters if it's consecutive. We don't look at the cumulative base of like, oh, man, he got nine months. He learned a bunch of shit. He had a slip, used a few times. Then he got 18 months, learned a bunch of shit, had a slip, used a few times. Now he's got four more years of continuous and he's learned some like. I don't know. I, I think I look at people like that. I mean, I've been around now 20 whatever years. I've known people that have come in and out over the years and still never seem to get a lot of time. Like like I said, they'll get but I don't, like I assume they know a lot about the program. Mm. You know, and it, like this is my personal and right. maybe I'm more open than other people, but they go in a meeting they're going to say they have six months, but I'll be like oh, that's fucking so and so. He's been around here since I've fucking been coming. <laughs> like I know they know, you right. know about traditions and H&I and whatever else because they've been around a long time, not based off there. So this, this uh, website I was looking at decided to break it down to where counting might help and where counting might hurt. And I think this is more on an individual level, like where it might help you if you want to count or where it might hurt you. So it says counting can help when it provides motivation for sticking to your plan, kind of like what you talked about. Uh, it gives a sense of achievement for achieving one's goals. 
If a person decides to share their account, they enjoy social support and encouragement. Uh, the unfortunate drawback is the other is also true. The individual is counting out of excitement at beginning a new life, not fear of falling back into old patterns. Hmm. And they said counting can hurt when a slip can become a full-blown relapse because the person figures, I've lost my time anyway, may as well go all out. Like, that could be an issue with looking at it as clean time only. Uh, fear of public humiliation deters a person from seeking help and support after a slip. Counting is imposed by an outside authority, which will eventually lead to rebellion. I feel like that yeah. one just fits for NA. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I do feel like we impose it on each other. Yes. And another time would be a person bases their entire self-worth on the number of days on the sobriety calculator or the number of AANA chips collected. Just as dietitians recommend against basing feelings of self-worth entirely on the number on the scale, professionally trained therapists uh, warn against believing that more sobriety equals being a better person, or worse, that having a drink or drug reduces a person to worthlessness. Such feelings can lead to severe relapse and even suicide. So yeah, I, I have beefs with this whole clean time idea. The more and more I look at it, the more I would love if we could move towards recovery time like i don't think we shouldn't acknowledge when we changed our life right i think that's a huge crucial point and moment in our life i just don't think we should have so much ability to worry about everybody else's and if it's recovery time i can't count yours i don't know how long you've been doing that yeah and i've never been a huge fan of anniversaries anyway like they're i mean for me personally <laughs> like, just fuck them all i know i don't even like them um I, well i've always felt that it's kind of grandiose or whatever and right. and i used to joke about it a lot i don't really as much anymore but it's like what i deserve a fucking cake because i haven't been an asshole for 10 years like yep. that you know like it's worthy you, you know like i shouldn't have been being an asshole stealing shit and doing drugs anyway yeah. i should have been like being a decent human being like that's right. and i don't get a cake for being a decent human being every day but you know that's how i used to kind of make fun of it but now it's just i, I don't know it's become a part of the culture, so I just subject myself to it. I, I guess as a final thought, uh, just to wrap this up, I don't look at recovery, whether that's from drugs or whether that's just in mental health at all. I don't look at recovery as a linear event anymore, right? It's a very like spiral staircase kind of event, right? We, mm -hmm. we come around, we readdress these same issues over and over again, hopefully <laughs> a little more healed, a little more further up the staircase, so we're a little more distant from that problem we were looking at on the ground when we were at ground level, but they don't go away. And, and for us to look at this disease in a different way than we look at every other disease on earth, where we judge people by their responsiveness to the treatment and how long they're responsive to it, but we put a like a personal judgment on the quality of the person based on that, I just don't like it. I want to I wanna get away from it altogether, whether that's moving away from clean, whether that's not moralizing with each other's clean time, whether that's calling it something else like recovery time, whether that's just, I feel like holding on to being this one thing keeps us from the openness to explore what the fuck really works for my body. And yeah. that's what I think we should be focused on. Not the judgment anybody might have on us, but what the fuck works because whatever works, let's do that. Yeah. And, and I guess I would agree with most of that. I, th I just think the only, the fear there is that, for some of us, 
there's a fear that opening that door leads to death. Like the consequences could be dire. And that's not for everybody. And if you have the right supports in place, you know what I mean? Hopefully you're going to catch those issues before they blow up. But hmm. that's a fear, a realistic fear when you're a person that's tried at different points in your life to manage your using for different reasons with no success. I guess I feel like that fear, though, is guiding us to a place where we're doing that anyway. Like, I feel like we're already alienating people and they're dying. So what the fuck? Like, I mm. feel like the fear is choosing a decision that's still doing that. We're still having that consequence of people dying because they're not finding recovery. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, way in feedback. Love to hear your thoughts on this so I can argue with you um, <laughs> and have a good week. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>